Hey guys, Andrea here. Just a quick message to let you guys know that we did experience some technical difficulties with the audio in this episode, specifically with Alex's mic. It doesn't seem to be picking her up as cleanly as usual, but you can hear her. You can hear everything. I thought I'd leave a message to let you know that we know so that you don't send us a whole bunch of messages letting us know because those just make me sad. Anyway, sorry about the glitch and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with... Andrea Subasati. And we are back in a post-president-elect Trump era. It wasn't what we were expecting, but it's what we're in, and we are... Here in support of all of our American listeners, I'm sure a lot of you aren't super happy with this, but I think, oddly enough, the films we're going to talk about today actually kind of illuminate some of the issues that you guys are going through right now. The more optimistic friends of mine are saying these are the last kicks of that kind of conservative, racist rhetoric. And I really hope that they're right. And it's kind of comforting to think that it comes and goes, but it's also a bit disquieting that it has to come and go. But the hard work must go on. We lick our wounds and we get right back into the trenches and we just keep keeping on. So today we're going to be talking about two films that deal with the small pockets of society and communities and what transpires in the darkness of those solitudes. So first up, we are going to be talking about Charles Lawton's 1955 cult classic, I guess we can call it, The Night of the Hunter. Ben never told you he'd throw it in the river, did he? I can hear you whispering, children, so I know you're down there. I can feel myself getting awful mad. Here is all the passion and suspense, the heart-pounding warmth of the best-selling novel that gripped millions. Wake up! Come on! Superb, unforgettable performances by an extraordinary array of talent. Figured I was gone, huh? Run. Hide in the staircase. Run quick! Ruby, shit! What do you want? I want them kids. I'm giving you to the count of three to get out of here, then I'm coming across the kitchen shooting. The combined powers of Paul Gregory and Charles Lawton brought the King Mutiny Court Martial to Broadway. Now the screen receives that same creative, electrifying impact. The Night of the Hunter. 
John and his little sister Pearl are a couple of kids growing up in West Virginia in the 1930s. When their dad, Ben, suddenly comes home one day with a gunshot wound and a wad of cash, he tells John to hide the money and makes him solemnly swear never to reveal its whereabouts, not even to their mother. He's then apprehended by the police where he's taken to jail before he's executed. Before he's hanged, however, he lets it slip to his cellmate, one Harry Powell, that he's stashed robbery money somewhere in his hometown. Powell, a misogynist con man who sweeps the country posing as a traveling preacher, decides to pay a visit to Ben's grieving widow, Willa. After much cajoling from townsfolk, Willa marries Powell, who eventually learns that only the children know where the money is hidden, so he murders her. John and Pearl refuse to divulge the secret, and when Powell threatens their lives, they flee in a rowboat. Powell continues to stalk them until they arrive at the house of Rachel Cooper, who takes in stray children. When Powell arrives at the Cooper house, she doesn't buy a word of his preacher talk and vows to protect John and Pearl at any cost. She winds up shooting Powell and calling the cops on him. Once he's apprehended, Willa's body is found and the town who once loved him forms a lynch mob and howls for his head, while John and Pearl enjoy their first Christmas with their new family. Now, Night of the Hunter was based on the 1953 novel by Davis Grubb, which was based on the true story of Harry Powers, who was hanged in 1932 for the murder of several widows and their children. He didn't pose as a preacher, though. He used Lonely Heart's personal ads to get his widows. Now, the film was a critical and box office failure upon its release, in spite of being very well respected since it's been inducted into the Library of Congress. It was an unusual film for its time. It was black and white in a time when color was all the rage, and it has elements of film noir as well as German expressionism. And I think it's important to keep in mind that when we talk about The Night of the Hunter, is this film was released in 1955, as Andrea mentioned, at the height of Technicolor, Cinemascope, these grand sweeping epics, which were the kind of nouveau way of filmmaking in America, especially because at this point, you were beginning to see the rise of the television culture. So to make and then release a film set during the Great Depression, shot in black and and white shot with you know a lot of visual aesthetic emphasis on stark contrast again the german expressionism element there's a lot of theatrical elements to it it was not really accepted in its time. It got some good reviews, but it didn't really take off in any real way. It did have star power behind it. Robert Mitchum, who plays Powell, was a very kind of well-liked and well-respected star of the time. And But it didn't have that grab that cinema was really going for at this time. And it was also the time of, we've talked about this before on the podcast, the height of the American dream. This was post-World War II, evil had been defeated, and everyone just wanted to look forward. They wanted to look forward to things that were bright and shiny and new and consume and get back on track to what they thought they should have. So to make a film set about 20 years in the past during the Great Depression was not really something audiences wanted to participate in at this time. And it's actually very sad because Charles Lawton, who is a really famous and well-respected actor, especially on the stage, he never made another film. This was his, you know, one and done. He didn't want to go back and put his heart and soul into it the way he had with Night of the Hunter and face that kind of rejection and lack of respect. 
That's right. And Lawton, having been an actor and a first-time director, was very respectful to the actor's input. He had a great cast and he took everything they wanted to pour into it, especially as regards Robert Mitchum. My God, what an amazing performance. But I think for those of you who are into classic films and even those of you who aren't, to go back to this film, it's weird. It's a bit of an odd duck. It goes along at a really fast clip mostly when it lags in really strange areas that kind of really lend themselves for analysis. There's gravity in weird spots. So it was a really interesting film for me as a big fan of the film to look back and pick out these themes because they're not always very clear. And another film that Night of the Hunter is very much indebted to is Citizen Kane, which was made by another kind of former theater guy, Orson Welles. And they both have these really incredible visual styles, which weren't really lent to a kind of mainstream American audience and were really only appreciated after their time. And that's, you know, very much something that has happened with Night of the Hunter. Earlier, I mentioned that it is considered a cult classic. And for those who know and love this film, it's very much a classic, like capital C classic. But I think for a wider film audience, even a mainstream film cinephile audience, not everyone knows it. So it's a really interesting way to come to it. And there are some people when they talk about this film that are more ardent that it's a kind of fable, that it's a morality tale that it might be a thriller, but there are a few people who really define it as a horror film. And it doesn't imbue itself with a lot of the common horror tropes, even for its time. I mean, during the 50s, you were dealing with the kind of radioactive atomic age panic with monsters and things like that. And in this film, the monster is Harry Powell, who is articulate, kind of charming, kind of goofy, very enigmatic in so many ways. But the moments when Lawton sets him up to be chilling are truly, truly like there's something very sinister about this person. And I think there's a really interesting way that this film tackles the notion of evil. Mm -hmm. I love how the film opens up. Well, it opens up with a couple of things that kind of clip by quickly that you understand more on the rewatch maybe than on the first time you watch it. But it does open up with a scene of Powell driving along in his car and having monologue or a dialogue if you think his God is really there. I am inclined to think that if God exists, he's not really going to condone the acts of this misogynist con man who's like, yo, Lord, I know you hate women. I hate them too. And I'm doing your work. But I thought it was really interesting that we had that insight into this sociopathic serial killer that would become all the rage later in cinema when we get a bit more fascinated with real life serial killers. And even before that, the film opens with this kind of odd mother goose-like story with this character who you don't see until the final third of the film. When you're first watching this film, you don't know who this older woman speaking is. Then the good Lord went on to say, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Later, it's revealed to be Rachel Cooper, the woman who eventually kind of comes to the aid of the kids. And what's interesting about this moment is 
it sets the film up as very much a moralistic tale about the goodness, about the rightness or calmness of children, that there's something natural about the goodness of a child, that it's a purity there. And in essence, that scene does come out of nowhere because it does take so long to pay off. And those things aren't ever truly connected within the film. You have to do that for yourself as an audience member. But what I think it does really well is it sets up a moralistic expectation of the film because it's said, it's stated, and it's very omniscient within its placement within the film. So you feel like, okay, this is the film's moral compass. The kids are good. These kids are good. We're going to believe that all kids in this world are generally good. And then there's also an element of a false prophet coming in sheep's clothing who turns out to be Powell. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. This is kind of a foreshadowing of all the really complicated questions of motherhood that are brought out throughout the film. An interesting little sidebar that I got rewatching the film is you've got the children's disembodied heads floating around in space while Rachel Cooper's talking. And if you keep your eye on Pearl, who is at the bottom right of the screen, she does the most hilarious, I can only describe it as side eye. Like she looks like she's listening and then kind of looks to the side and looks up again like, what the hell is this? And it is so funny. I can't believe that no one noticed it. So they must have left it in for lulls. So even if you're not familiar with this film, you may be familiar with some of the iconography of this film. And there are a lot of stills from this film that are used throughout film culture and journalism. And one of them is of Harry Powell, again, Robert Mitchum, as we've mentioned already in this podcast. And the most telling emblem of him as a character is on his knuckles. He has love tattooed on one hand and hate tattooed on the other. And he has a very kind of silly bit about that. H-A-T-E. It was with this left hand that old brother Cain struck the blow that laid his brother low. L-O-V-E. You see these fingers, dear hearts, these fingers has veins that run straight to the soul of man. The right hand, friends, the hand of love. Now watch and I'll show you the story of life. It interests me so much as this indicator of character because it's just as indicative of why you would make this film in black and white, because it is. To Harry Powell, there is a notion of love and hate. It is one of two things. And he's able to skew everything his own way because uh, essentially God is allowing him to do all of this stuff for as long as he sees fit. One of the more interesting things I think that this film does is the way it portrays evil. So I think we're all in agreement that if you know this film and you've participated in viewing in it, Harry Powell is evil. He's very evil, but Lawton and Mitchum and everyone else involved in the film is very careful to mock him quite a bit. You know, the kids are kind of openly insubordinate of him, especially John. He's not held by a kind of common horror trope. He's, you know, enigmatic in those ways that I've already mentioned. And and it doesn't embellish his evilness. Night of the Hunter actually makes light of this in many ways through the adult world which he participates in, especially early in the film as he's trying to woo Willa. It's shown that he's kind of charming and everyone's looking the other way, but it's only through the eyes of the children that you actually get to see his true motives and the means that he'll go to get them. 
That's right. They also kind of give him some scenes of buffoonery. He's the butt of some jokes. He's the butt of some physical comedy where something smashes on his head and he's like, Ugh. and then there's shades of Sideshow Bob in there. There's actually shades of Powell in The Simpsons later on in Sideshow Bob when he has the same knuckle tats. But as you know, Simpsons characters only have a couple of fingers. So it's just like L-U-V on one hand and H-A-T with a line over the A in the other hand for hate. It's hilarious. <laughs> Anyway, Powell straight up hates women. He hates women. He has that conversation with the Lord that illustrates that. And then there's the scene where he's in a show and he's watching a performer with outright disgust and he sticks his hand in his pocket. And there's that hilariously phallic moment where he triggers his switchblade right before he's pinched. Alex is correct in that this film shows good and evil as very black and white when it comes to Powell. But when it comes to Ben, for example, we've got a guy who's mostly kind of good, I guess. At the very least, he is God in the eyes of his son. And then women become more complicated later where there are women who are inherently good and women who are inherently evil, as if there's some evil deep down in all of them that is either repressed or brought out to light. But we'll get into that in a bit. I think it's really interesting the way this film kind of sets up the notion of God in that, you know, in the opening scene, which really sets it up and you have Powell kind of talking out loud, as you're saying, Andrea, monologuing. And it was basically like, God, you keep allowing me to do this, so I'm just going to keep doing it. It would be like if right now I was like, okay, God, I'm going to drink all the wine that Andrea and I have. <gasps> and if you don't stop me, I'm just going to keep doing it and assume you're okay with it. Like, that's the kind of mentality this person has. And I think in the wake of the past week with the election and everything, we've struggled with these notions of the alt-right, conservatism, a kind of religious right. And I like that these films, and I feel like we talk about so many films on this podcast, which really closely try to complicate that notion. And they try to separate this kind of religious fundamentalism versus a spirituality and an inherent goodness that can come with believing that there is a God and we're all just trying to be good and do right by everyone. And I think those two are very distinct. So I'm not saying if you're a religious person, you're bad, not at all. But I think we see more and more that religion can give certain people platforms to openly express hate and intolerance. And even a bit, as we mentioned in the last episode, when we talked about Principal Wilkins in Trick or Treat, the kind of stature that Powell is allowed it as soon as he rides on into town and he's a preacher and he's very handsome. Robert Mitchum was a very handsome man that he can just kind of ride on in and it's open doors to him. And even Willa, she's kind of reticent to get involved, but the whole society is pushed down on her through the shopkeeper of like, you're not that young. You've got kids. If he's going to go for it, you better get on that joystick. That young lady better look sharper. Some smart sister between here and Captain is going to snap him up right from under her nose. She's not the only fish in the river. I also got the sense that men were able to see through Powell. You've got Ben who called his bullshit right away. Don't listen to me talk in my sleep. You're not finding that money. What, what kind of religion are you preaching anyway? What religion you profess, preacher? The religion the Almighty and me worked out betwixt us. I'll bet. 
And then you've got Icy Spoon's husband, Walt, who after Willa runs off is like, you know, I feel like there wasn't something quite right about that guy. And John suspects him right away. Now, John, as I mentioned, is obviously extremely loyal to his father. He was very distressed at seeing his father thrown down by the cops and taken away like that. And shortly thereafter, he's telling a bedtime story to Pearl where he really distorts the story in his own mind and says, you know, there was this man that was very, very good and and he had this gold and bad guys came and took him away and the bad guys will be back to get his gold. So he does have a sense that this money is what he has remaining of his father and he holds it very sacred. I find one of the most tragic things about this movie is that these kids, when they're on the run, they are starving and they are filthy and they're eating fucking raw potatoes when they've got $10,000 in cash. They'd be living larger than everyone else in the Great Depression era. But he refuses to spend that money and Pearl doesn't even see it as money. There's that scene where she's making paper dolls. You'll get awful mad, John. I done a sin. And even as awful as Powell was, insofar as John knew that he was a bad man from the very beginning, at the very end, when Powell is taken away, John feels these flashback paternal feelings from when his own father was taken away. And he runs over and says, no, don't take the money. And I think that's where this film actually enters into more of that theatrical realm. And that is kind of one of my favorite things about this film is it's playing everything at a very high surface level. There are some kind of implications of the religious right versus a kind of Freudian interpretation, but neither of it is really all that good or awesome. Really, it's the kind of sins of the world that are placed on children. I think that to me is what the film really gets at. And it makes such a clear distinction between children and adults. There's never a notion that, well, you know, once Harry Powell was a kid himself, it was like, no, he's an adult and he's fucking evil. That's right. And all the adults in this film are so fundamentally flawed. Everywhere John tries to turn for comfort in what he knows, for example, his mother, we'll get into his mother in a bit, but then there's the character of Birdie, the drunken fisherman who says, if ever you need me, John, I'm right here. And sure enough, John goes right to him and he's not there because he's an alcoholic. So there's a great sense of adults failing children in this film, it permeates throughout, and it's up to one good virtuous woman to clean up all the mess. And I think that speaks to this notion of a restart generation. You know, I think there was so much trauma and pain after World War II that you have this generation of kids who won't have lived through these kind of two world wars, which happen in quick succession, relatively speaking, in history. So, you know, you have these kids who are pure and good, and there was so much idealism after World War II, like, this shit is done, it's done, we're going to be better, and, and we're going to fight, and we're going to be good. And I think this film harkens back to there will always be evil in this world, and evil comes in so many different forms. And one of the things I love about this film is the way it really articulately discusses the notion of public spaces versus private spaces. The way Harry Powell is, especially in that first third of the film when he's out and he's wooing Willa and he's very public and he's a showman. And you can see that kind of charm and charisma that Robert Mitchum has. And then when it goes to the private sphere, and I, I think we have to talk about the wedding night between Powell and Willa. And Willa is kind of randy. She's like ready for this. She's 
been alone for a while now, and she's finally with this guy, and she's gonna fucking get some. But she doesn't, and Willa is a really interesting character in that I feel like all these women in the film fall under one of two categories. Again, this is the black and white nature of the film, and it's not quite the virgin horror binary of women that we are used to seeing in film and we're used to discussing in this podcast. It's a little bit different. Women are either presented as very fickle and attention-seeking or pious and independent. It's not exactly virgin whore, but it's close. But what's interesting to me is this divide is policed by the women within the film. I mean, you've got Willa, who is she legitimately suspects at first that Powell is after Ben's stolen money, but she's easily assuaged by Powell. And we can hardly blame her for falling for Powell's bullshit, but what's more frightening is the ease with which she resigns her kids to this situation, even knowing that John really doesn't like him. And furthermore, she accepts her own murder with a terrifyingly quiet resignation. Her only concern at that moment is for her own soul, which she genuinely believes that Powell has saved. So is she a bad mother? I think this film kind of speaks to the entrapment of a lot of those social contracts and the notion of, okay, Willa finally landed herself a new husband. She can be socially acceptable again. And okay, she's not going to get sex, and okay, he's going to save her soul, and she's going to talk about how she sinned, and she's going to do all this stuff, and it still doesn't get her anywhere she wants. And I think that negotiation she has between this, you know, lack of receiving any kind of support or intimacy or care within the private sphere makes her act out almost harder in a public sphere. And I think that's a really interesting dichotomy because it's like the lonelier she gets, the more she performs. In the early scenes in the film, I get the sense that she's there. She's present as much as she can be for her kids, but she's withdrawn. And God, who wouldn't be? You know, you lose your husband who's stealing money for you. And that's a big thing. And this film kind of shows this strange resignation which comes and this lack of fortitude that she has. And even into her death, the way she's kind of memorialized through her death is so eerie and and chilling. It's hard to condemn her, really, because she's just so pitiful. She's just so beaten down by everything, which complicates that whole virgin whore binary I was talking about before. Well, because she subscribed. She subscribed to what everyone told her to do. She did it. She played by the rules. And she didn't get any reward. She got a lack of reward. She was punished for it. And I think this film is so interesting and why people go back to it, and it's so influential now to so many filmmakers, is because this was like pre-lash to the downfall of the American dream. It was calling it back in the heyday of it. Which brings us to the flip side of Willa, which is Rachel Cooper. She takes the children in without a moment's hesitation. She's got a whole system set up for taking in kids and having them help with the farm and selling things at the market. She's got it all set up. She is going to solve the problem of vagabond children, which was apparently very much a problem. There's a scene where John and Pearl arrive at a farm and this woman is just doling out raw potato after raw potato and is like, where are your parents? Oh, God, get the fuck out of here. Like that must have been so demoralizing to see. Back in the Depression era, money was so scarce that having children meant after four years you could send them to work. And yeah, it was another mouth to feed, but it was another source of income. So 
the poor were just working their asses off in these very cramped quarters with lots and lots of children. So the surplus of hungry children is a theme, and Rachel's just taking them all in. She takes pains to teach them the Bible in a very loving manner. She's kind and forgiving, but also really fucking tough when her shotgun comes out. And what's interesting to me is her attitude toward other women. Now, one of the girls in her brood is a girl by the name of Ruby, and she's the eldest teen, and she's quickly learned how to sneak around behind Rachel's back to get men to buy her things, which makes her an easy target for Powell. So on the one hand, I feel like she's a device to get Powell into that household. But at the same time, Rachel looks at her and recognizes this as some kind of characteristically female trait. There's another scene where they're in the market and a woman runs over and she's like, oh, that's my kid. Hi, honey. I got to get back to work. And Rachel's just like, all these women are running around having kids and leaving me to take care of them. So it's coming from a place of people are being irresponsible and I'm cleaning it up. But as the mother figure of so many young girls, I think that was really interesting. Yeah, she doesn't try to police it. And I think the way you might expect in a perhaps more traditional morality tale Rachel very much lets Ruby be Ruby. She's there for her. She is supportive. She offers advice, but it's never a, you talk to a man again, you can get the fuck out of my house. It's not that at all. And I think, you know, it's, it's actually very heartwarming to see that because even in the little bit we get of Ruby, uh, which is really, I think again, in that last third of the film, we see her grow quite a lot for a young female character who's really a, if anything, a supporting character in the film. That's right. It's almost as if Rachel sees this as a phase, as something that she must go through or something that she must overcome, something that is innately female, that you're going to try and get guys to take care of you, but fuck that. In this household, we do it ourselves. And I think through that lens, that means that Rachel is truly the only one who could have ever seen through Powell's scheme, because she is the one who is not out there looking for a man to help support these kids. She recognizes that this system is flawed and it is broken. And, you know, people are going to be people. People are going to want sex and they're going to want intimacy and things will happen. And those things can be kids. And you might not be able to take care of a kid. And she's there willing to pick up the slack. And again, it's that kind of really progressive morality for a film that was made in 1955, set in the Great Depression, at the height of, you know, the nuclear family. This is very, very, very different from it. Now, we mentioned earlier that this was Charles Lawton's only film. He was an openly bisexual man who was actually married to Elsa Lanchester, who you'll remember from our episode on Bride of Frankenstein. And she actually turned down the role, interestingly. I wish I knew more about that, but I'll just drop that little nugget there. Another example of the binary that we're talking about in this film between black and white and good and evil is really beautifully exemplified in the scene where Rachel is sitting on her porch with her gun, waiting for Powell to come, and he's just beyond the fence, and they sing together. Leaning on Jesus, leaning on Jesus, safe and secure from all They're singing the same hymn. 
they are both religious people. They're just totally opposite sides of that coin. Yeah, I think that's the opposition I was talking about earlier is you have someone who is utilizing religion for personal gain versus someone who has utilized the teachings of religion, and I think in this case Christianity, to help the world in the way that she can, which I think is kind of the ultimate goal of any religion, in my opinion, if you subscribe to one. And so the attention to detail in that scene, the way the camera kind of shifts between focusing on the two of them and is very careful to put them both in the shot together. But it's, it situates them both so far away from each other. If you have not seen this film, I really, really hope you do now because, if anything, that scene is so impressive because it is so subtle, but it gets across so much. And this is, I think, to me, a really perfect and crystallized example of what film can achieve in very, very simple means. Yes, we can have big blockbusters with all the CGI in the world, but to create that kind of terror and intimacy as well as distance is a hugely impressive feat. What slays me about that scene is there is such a sense of resignation. The fact that she must be at least a little bit scared. You know, she's about to be attacked and yeah, she's got a big ass gun, but you know, still shit's going to go down. It's a resignation that to me really resonated with all the other themes of nature throughout the film is in nature, there are predators and there are prey and you fight for your life, but ultimately you have to kind of accept your lot or accept your position in the circle of life. Now, once the children are on their own in the boat, there's a lot of nature imagery. There's a lot. This is kind of where the movie really slows down that I mentioned before, that plot is flying by and then they're in the boat and you've got these shots of spiders and frogs and owls and turtles. These kids have no idea how to to survive on their own and they get by by begging and they're really left to John's instinct for survival which is quite good. He takes pretty good care of Pearl and he calls the shots and he keeps an eye out for Powell and knows when to hit the road. And Powell in himself also becomes increasingly animalistic throughout the film. I especially notice that when he's rebuffed or hurt, he just howls like an animal. <laughs> Throughout the film, he lurks and he stalks and he waits until the right moment to strike. And so that scene we were talking about is such a beautiful crystallization of that chase. And I think the use of nature and natural instinct is hugely important to this film because, if anything, the backdrop of the Great Depression is the failure of capitalism. It is the failure of an economy. It is the failure of a society. And eventually everything kind of swung back, uh, due in part to the war and, you know, that whole mess. And I think, you know, you see that kind of notion of these backwoods and these backwaters where nature is still predominant and it is still thriving. And I, I think, if anything, you see the natural instinct of Rachel really pulling to the forefront and Powell, who throughout so much of the film has denied this kind of natural instinct. And I'm thinking really explicitly in his sexuality and the fact that he doesn't want to engage sexually with Willa and that he seemingly becomes violent and enraged whenever he is sexually aroused. There is a denial of self in there. I think the morality of this film has less to do with religion, even though that does play a part in it, but more to do with a natural 
element of we have children and they are our next generation, so we have to take care of them. And Rachel, for everything that she has, does not judge. And I think it is that steady hand that allows her to come out on top in the end. That's right. It's almost like society has failed us. And so we've got to get back to nature. We've got to get back to basics and deconstruct all these systems. We've got to have a farm and grow our food and, you know, do things the old fashioned way. And I feel like the overall note of the film, it ends on a very hopeful note because we've got Rachel asserting that what she loves about children is their resilience and they endure. And, you know, she's got John and Pearl who showed up filthy on a skiff after being orphaned and being stalked by this terrifying man. And yet here they are thriving. They're fine. They're good kids. They came out on top because she allowed them to be. And I felt like that was a really hopeful message for things are fucked up, but the kids are all right and it's going to be okay. So... The film ends, as we've already said, on a hopeful note. It's actually uh, slightly ambiguous, but it's pretty beautiful, and it ends at Christmas. And there's a really adorable scene where John's the only boy in the house, and all the girls have made Rachel, I believe, what is it, potholders, like knitted or crocheted potholders, and she's like, oh, another potholder. And it's very, very sweet. And John, at this point, realizes he hasn't gotten Rachel a present. So he goes into the next room and, what is it, he finds an apple and kind of, like, pulls it into, like, a napkin and then gives it to her. And that, to me, is I get really emotional when I watch that moment. And I'm not able to fully analyze it. I can't place it in some kind of form that, you know, Andrea and I are want to do, where we can break down and say this means this in a film. To me, the closest I can maybe get to it is it's John, who was suspicious of families and social contracts, deciding to kind of re-engage with it. But I don't know, Andrew, what do you think? I think so. I think it was also just kind of a note of sweetness of you clearly didn't prepare, but you know what? It's the thought that counts, you know? There was some significance to his gift from Rachel, which is a watch that he was eyeing earlier. And the movie didn't really parry on this point that he has a doll full of money, and if he wants a watch, he can have it. But I think it's a testament to the strength of his character and his commitment to carry that money and not spend it and not do anything with it that he resists. This film just gets me in the feels. I mean, both of these films do. They get me in very different feels. Night of the Hunter, I feel a lot of pathos, and I, I find it very tragic, and I find the other film very tragic as well, but in a very different way. And with that said... Why don't we move along to 1961's The Innocents? There has never been a ghost story created especially for the adult moviegoer until The Innocents. Do they ever return to possess a living? 20th Century Fox, which presented Deborah Carr in Heaven Knows Mr. Allison and such outstanding motion picture immortals as Snake Pit, Gentleman's Agreement, and Peyton Place, now gives you The Innocents. Based on the Henry James chiller of macabre evil. Brilliantly adapted for the screen by William Archibald and Truman Capote. Do they ever return to possess the living? 
Set in Victorian England, the innocence begins when Miss Giddens, a governess, is hired to take care of a young orphan sibling duo of Miles and Flora in a decaying English manner. Miss Giddens is initially enraptured by the children, finds them very charming, and she really loves the house. She likes the other people who work there. But then everything seems to be slightly amiss. She begins seeing things. She begins feeling things. She begins sensing that things are wrong. Soon she uncovers the downfall of the previous governess, Miss Jessel, who had an illicit affair with the gardener, Quint. She then feels that Miss Jessel and Quint have somehow possessed these children who are acting out in increasingly bizarre ways, which is causing Miss Giddens to act out herself. Miss Giddens then decides to attempt to exercise the ghost by sending Flora away with the housekeeper, Miss Gross, and attempting to force Miles to recognize the ghost of Quint, which seems to be hovering over him. And when he finally does, everything seems to end. The ghost seems to go away. But when she looks down at Miles, she realizes that he has died. So, The Innocence is actually based on a Henry James novella from the Victorian era called The Turn of the Screw. Now, Henry James is a very famous writer, probably best known for Portrait of a Lady and many, many, many English literature classes the world over. But he had a real thing for ghosts. In fact, if you go to any bookstore or any library, you can probably find a pretty heady collection of Henry James's ghost stories. And James was less a preponderant of the occult or the supernatural, but he saw ghosts as a way in literature to amplify certain elements of everyday life and actually bring them to the kind of cold light of day, so to speak, rather than this kind of repressive and oppressive Victorian era, which he was writing in. Turn of the Screw was developed into a play by William Archibald, which also really informed Jack Layton's version of The Innocents. Archibald had a very strong sense of prose, a very strong sense of gothic poetry, which is something that Henry James was very interested in conveying into the screen. And so he consulted with many people, among them the playwright Harold Pinter, and also Truman Capote, who added in the scenes of rotting and decay, beetles, the crumbling statues, the withering flowers, all to convey the gothic prose that Archibald used. And he also added in the Freudian undertones, the idea that the whole thing might just be a repressed sex fantasy. It was really trendy at the time, which tickled Clayton to kind of flirt with, but he also wanted to keep the film very ambiguous. And that ambiguity is, for me, what really makes this film shine. And there was, in Henry James's original novella, there was that element of an unreliable narrator, though from everything I've read, that wasn't necessarily James's intention. He kind of saw it as a straight ghost story from what I've seen in his letters and his biographies. But as literary criticism progresses, and as we are continuing on the tradition of film criticism, a lot of people have posited this notion of the unreliable narrator. So that's a really kind of central conceit when we talk about the innocence, as well as if you go and you talk about Turn of the Screw. So is this all in Miss Giddens' head, or are there actual ghosts present? And I actually don't come down on either side of that. For this film, or even within the book when I studied it in my undergrad, it's something that's kind of intangible about it. And I like that because I think whichever way you take it, it illuminates certain things about it. 
But I think what's also important to consider is this film does have a kind of theatrical lineage, which the previous film, The Night of the Hunter, does as well. But on top of James's original source material, Truman Capote is, of course, one of the most famous writers of the 20th century, not only famous for Breakfast at Tiffany's, which he wrote the original book for, but also his probably most famous work, in my opinion, which was In Cold Blood, which is kind of the first true crime or tends to be considered one of the first popular true crime manuscripts. So it's interesting to me that he's pulling from different elements to illuminate certain things that help amplify on top of the ghosts, on top of everything else, certain things that really shift a Victorian era setting to something more contemporary and something more tangible in 1961. And, you know, this film was released, you know, six years after Night of the Hunter. And it's important to consider those similarities, not only on top of the thematic elements, which we'll get into, but just on the practical level, when we talk about that this film wasn't shot in cinemascope, it was shot in different ratio. And that was, you know, very, very important to Jack Clayton, as well as the cinematographer, Freddie Francis, to give it a kind of unique feel. It wasn't a populist thing for mass consumption necessarily, even though it's quite an entertaining film. And again, this film is in black and white. We are in the heyday of Technicolor still, and this is something that is Immediately, when you see it as black and white, again, it kind of echoes uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. It's it's a turn back to an older time. There's something creepier about black and white. There's something more mythological about it. It lends an air of authenticity to its era that it's supposedly set in. And with regard to the cinematography, Freddie Francis took pains to keep the action within a certain area within the frame. He blurred out the edges and the corners of the lens, literally. He would walk right up and paint it to keep everything kind of soft and in the middle. And it legitimately looks like the whole thing is by candlelight. Like you buy that because the lighting is so soft. And there's actually an incredible excerpt on the Criterion website from Freddie Francis's autobiography and his memoirs where he talks about shooting the innocent. So we will link that in the episode notes. And he goes into quite a bit more detail about some of the techniques he used and why he used it. So if you're interested in this aspect of the film, please check the show notes for that. So the Victorian era had a very distinct socioeconomic divide. Children in the Victorian era went to work very early and they were raised by their parents. They had big households and they had very close households and close quarters, whereas wealthy children were often pretty spoiled, left to be raised by hired help and largely starved of affection. You hired somebody to raise your kids and maybe you visited with them now and then. It was kind of a cold and frosty atmosphere, which is conveyed so well in the early scene of their wealthy playboy uncle who is just like, I don't want to have anything to do with these guys at all. Take them off my hands, Miss Giddens, for Christ's sake. In brief, Miss Giddens, I'm a very selfish fellow. I'm the last man alive to be saddled so suddenly and so awkwardly with two orphaned infants. It's most unfortunate, for I have no room for them, neither mentally nor emotionally. So for anyone who doesn't know, the Victorian era takes place throughout the majority of the 19th century, kind of from the 1830s right up until the dawn of the 20th century. And that's, of course, when Queen Victoria of England was reigning, country of the Victorian era. And, you know, I'll say this as a daughter of a British father, that I swear to God, those Brits really just think it's still the Victorian heyday. They 
fucking love that era. It is all full of repression, of social mores, of class structure. It is so hugely important. And what was interesting for me in my minor uh, when I was in my undergrad was in English literature. And I took actually a couple classes that dealt with various elements of the Victorian era. And a lot of the literature that came out during this period is incredibly subversive. Not only Henry James's work, especially Turn of the Screw, but, but also the works by Charles Dickens and Jane Eyre. So you've got this kind of really big divide between a kind of known class system and these writers who are writing about the working class infiltrating this kind of class structure. So in Jane Eyre, it was hugely upsetting at the time because it's a story by Charlotte Bronte of this governess who walks into this house and kind of takes it over and the head of the house falls for her. And he gives up, you know, this kind of nice highfalutin marriage to be with her, essentially. So it's this kind of moral and social panic about this underclass with lives and ideas and passions and wants and that they can somehow achieve it. So I like that there's a kind of subversive element even within all the social constructs of the era. And I I think the turn of the screw and therefore the innocence really, really plays into that, but in an even darker way because... Miss Giddens, because she's actually named in this, she doesn't have a name in the original novella, she's on her own. You know, you get a bit of a backstory that she was raised in a religious family, she had lots of brothers and sisters. It was a place where you couldn't keep secrets. Secrets require a privacy that our little home did not provide. And then she's basically given the keys to a country manor, like a beautiful place. They talk a lot in the book, as I remember, about how the narrator, the governess character, is very aware of Gothic literature. So she's worried that she's headed into this kind of Gothic nightmare. But it's actually this beautiful home with like lots of sunlight and it's warm and it's lush. And then everything kind of falls apart from there. So you see this young woman who has been taught to obey the rules of this social order and then is given the key to it in essence by raising these kind of two upper class kids essentially and she falls apart in it. So on one hand I can see the novel and this film being really subversive and really really problematic to a kind of upper class but at the same time it's almost a warning of rising above your status to a certain degree. That's right. That's right. And nannies at the time, or governesses, were often spinsters. They were often very strict, no-nonsense, intolerant women who were stereotypically jealous, jealous of the upper class who are having all these kids, jealous that they don't have children of their own, that they have to be hired to take care of these kids. So again, there's this narrative that Miss Giddens is, she possesses such imagination and wonder, and she just really loves kids. And so this uncle thinks that he's hit the jackpot, but ultimately it's her innocence that brings everything down. Now, whether you conceive of this film as real or a dream, I feel like they can be two distinct readings, but I feel like I found something of a middle ground in terms of these children, without having a mother or father figure, latched on to Quint and Ms. Jessel. And so whether or not their ghosts are literal or metaphorical, their spirits remain with these kids. You've got Miles who learned how to ride his pony from Quint. He learned how to row his boat from Quint. Flora who learned to dance from Miss Jessel. They carry these things on and it's a huge source of anxiety for Miss Giddens who thinks that she's coming into these kids as blank slates. 
Yeah, it's almost like she's taking on a kind of stepmother role. Like if we're going back to the fairy tale analogy, this kind of quote unquote wicked stepmother. And she's so concerned about that. And one of the things that I always find really interesting every time I watch The Innocence is the way she immediately latches on to these kids. She is like, these are the fucking best kids I've ever met. What is anyone talking about? They're so rad. And I always struggle with that because the kids are okay. They're very precocious in a lot of ways. They've been raised in the right ways. They know how to play a certain game. And I'm sure they do like each other eventually. But it's very off-putting at the beginning. And it seems so happy clappy. Mm -hmm. And she just seems so relieved that they're not heathens. That, oh, they're clean and well-dressed and articulate. And, okay, this is fine. And it's only after, you know, she kind of sees past their socialized exteriors that she realizes that something is rotten. That's right. Upon learning that Miles is being sent home for bad behavior, that he's being expelled, she has a lot of anxiety about it. When she meets him, he's charming, he's got flowers for her, and they're taking the carriage back to Bly, and she just wants to interrogate him about it because she can't get past it. She can't reconcile that this child who she's already built up to be the second coming of Christ in her head might be corrupting other children. Oh, well, it has to be a mistake. Well, that couldn't be Miles. Well, miss. Oh, it's just as you said. Charm seems to run in the family. And that cruel letter. It must be a misunderstanding, a mistake. Yes, a mistake. (laughs) I also like the tension between her and the kind of head housekeeper, Miss Gross. There seems to be a kind of easy friendship between the two at the beginning, but the second things start to kind of go awry, Miss Giddens pulls rank. She pulls hard rank. And I think it's actually quite interesting in the film because in the book, the governess character is probably around 20. Like, she's young-ish. But in the film, the part is played by Deborah Kerr, who's stunningly beautiful and an incredible actress. But she was about 40 when they shot this. And she looks about 40. Again, stunningly attractive, but she looks older. And Miss Gross is, of course, even older than that. So I like the tension of these two women who kind of know that they will never have ownership of a child in any true way. So they're kind of using these kids as pawns between them. When Miss Giddens pulls rank, she even has to invoke the uncle to say, it's me, bitch. You and Flora will leave tomorrow. It is my decision. I shall send the servants away. He put me in charge, in sole charge, Mrs. Gross. Tomorrow I must be alone here, with Miles. So as we mentioned before, Miss Giddens herself is an example of a very innocent adult. In spite of her age, she's very naive. She's very virtuous, kind of a spinster in the making. And I feel like she sees this assignment as an opportunity to experience the wonder and virtue of motherhood without the messy business of courtship and marriage and sex, of which she seems to be blissfully ignorant. Now, there's many readings of this film that speculate that everything is the result of her own repressed sexuality. She says things that indicate that she's attracted to the children's rich uncle in spite of the fact that he's a pretty insufferable prick, and she's aghast at the idea that Ms. Jessel would carry on an affair with the valet who is so beneath her socioeconomically. And she becomes very obsessed with that illicit affair. It really rankles her. 
it actually reminded me, if there are any other theater nerds out there, of a play by August Strindberg, kind of around the same Victorian era, called Miss Julie. And so if anyone knows that play, I see a really direct correlation between those two, because it is about the relationships of servants and, you know, the woman of the house. And if anyone is really curious about the relationship between Miss Jessel and Quint, in researching for this episode, I discovered there's actually a prequel. Yeah, it blew our minds. We had no idea. We realized this like a couple of days ago. Yeah. Like, oh, shit. And can you watch that? We got to get something in there. So I actually had a bit of time last night. So I found it online and I was able to watch it. And it's from 1972. And it is called The Nightcomers. And it stars Marlon Brando as Peter Quint. And it's a very weird movie. It's like a Victorian era Fifty Shades of Grey with messed up kids. I would say it's probably only really worth a watch if you're like an Innocence or Turn of the Screw completionist. And it's not billed as a prequel to The Innocence. It's more billed as a prequel to Turn of the Screw. So it is out there. It's weird. Marlon Brando twists a nipple in it. And I felt weird. It kind of sullies the story a little bit. I mean, I haven't seen it, but I was looking at the synopsis that you had sent me, and it has Miles killing them, essentially, right? Oh, yeah. The kids are like total psychopaths in this film. Oh, because that's so much more fun, right? Like, just make it an evil kid film and get rid of all that subtlety and ambiguity. Yeah, but these evil kids like sex. (laughs) (laughs) I really get the sense that Miss Giddens She's presented so sympathetically, like we're with her the entire time. We are seeing what she's seeing. In fact, every time that you see an apparition, we always see her face first. We always see her gaze and her fright before we see the people, which is kind of a really interesting pre-point of view shot. And I, I really get the sense that her reaction to the realization that the kids might be possessed makes her quite aggressive. Like it's almost as if it's not about these actual children who technically pose no real threat to her. I mean, there's one scene where Miles gets a little bit rough with her and she gets really nervous and you can see her face, but it's probably just kids roughhousing. She's just so anxious about it. It's more the idea of corrupted youth that drives her, her passion that does them more harm than good. Well, the ultimate question of the film, and it's asked in a way by the title, is the question of who are the innocents in this film? And my honest reading of it, and I was mulling this over quite a bit the last few days, is I think they are all innocents. I think the paranoia of corruption is systemic from the culture outside of that house. And it kind of corrupts the house throughout just being there, throughout being present in their lives. But I don't think any of the characters are actually corrupt or evil. Even the ghosts, if we choose to believe the ghosts are real, I don't think they are either. And I think some of the most complicated moments in the film do come from when Miles plants a kiss or two on Miss Giddens. Those are weird moments. They are really weird. They're hard to watch. Like it, it, you catch your breath and you're like, what the fuck? They're so off-putting and yet so simple. Like there's nothing obscene about this kid. So you don't feel like these child actors are being molested in any way by it. It's so innocent and yet really, really sinister. And like you, I've been kind of ruminating about my feelings about this film. And I just kind of keep coming back to the meaning of the word innocence. You know, it's a word that we use to describe children as being 
it's kind of almost a nice way of saying ignorant. They're oblivious to things like sexuality and things like having to have money to pay rent and where's my next meal coming from. They are innocent of all of that. But the word innocent has as its antonym guilt, which has a negative connotation. So I really get the sense that Miss Giddens is innocent and the children are innocent and she is trying to keep them in her sense of innocence. She is trying to almost repress their maturity. Oh, well, so she has been herself, as we've already kind of mentioned, completely stagnated. Mm -hmm. So as Andrea said, you know, she kind of alludes to an attraction to the uncle. But when Miles kisses her, it's very much like kids just kiss you sometimes. They're just like, I love you. And that can happen on the lips sometimes. And they're just kids. They don't know what it is. But because this film takes such pains, unlike Night of the Hunter, to situate everything through Miss Ginn's viewpoint, this older woman viewpoint, it's like the first time she might have ever been kissed. And it's by a child. <laughs> and that's complicated for her. And, you know, is it a question of her taking these feelings and projecting them onto a child? And then what does that mean? Or is this a ghost? Is it a possession that is actually trying to fuck with her? Mm -hmm. I don't know where that lies, but I like that the film drops enough breadcrumbs on kind of either side of the argument to make it still a conversation today. You know, reading some of the uh, different articles about this film, there's not a lot of hard coming down on it either way. It's a lot of exploratory work on either side. That's right. And I feel like we probably all have examples of seeing kids do something that's oddly sexual or inappropriate. And you're like, don't do that, kid. And they're like, why? And you're like, because it's suggestive of, I can't explain this to you because you're innocent. You know what I mean? And the example in this film of that is, you know, when she's alone with Miles and he offers her hand and instead he taps that jelly bunny mold or something. It's an oddly obscene moment that makes you feel weird and there it has sort of sexual connotation i guess like you see the tap and you see the jiggle and maybe you conjure some kind of tit or something and it's really awkward and off-putting and you see it just unravel her but what do you say what do you do like it's probably a completely innocent thing that just makes her really uncomfortable Oh, I remember when one of my nephews was a baby and my sister was changing him and I was talking to my sister and she was changing the baby. And so she had like the diaper off, was getting the next diaper and he looked over at me and I was standing to the side, gave me the biggest smile in the world. And I was like, this is uncomfortable. I need to leave right now. <laughs> and I was like, oh God, is he possessed by the former gardener of this house that no, we don't you have? Weren't. <laughs> And if you consider that Miss Giddens has every reason to expect that these kids would be perfect blank slate specimens, like they're all the way out and bly, they should be totally, totally innocent, like not in a flowers in the attic type, they only have each other innocent type thing. But if not for this illicit affair, which was very illicit, it's suggested, oh, it's more than suggested that they full on had sex in rooms that the kids could see. Rooms. Used by daylight, uh, as though they were dark woods. So there's definitely an element of these kids emulate the role models that they have, and she feels like she has to undo all this damage, and she has to save them. Now, 
it's almost a little bit suspicious. Like, who loves kids that much? I get the sense that Miss Giddens, she loves children in the abstract. She loves what it is they represent. She loves Miles and Flora almost on principle because they possess this innocence, this imagination, this hope uncorrupted. And I think when we talk about motherhood, and we've talked about it on the podcast before, in past episodes, we've talked about how motherhood is often employed as the source of strength for women. It's Ripley's motivator in Aliens that allows her to become this superhero. And women's power is in reproduction. And you don't fuck with a mom. You don't fuck with a mama bear or a mama bird because they'll tear your fucking head off. It's a common device to legitimately evoke a woman's wrath or rage, either messing with their kids or or raping her. And yet both these films suggest that the powerful love a woman can have for her children isn't necessarily biological, which I thought is so interesting. You would think that that would be a theme that we'd see in more modern films because there are so many more blended families and stuff like that. And yet both these films show women taking children under their wing and just loving them as hard as they can simply because they are children and they are innocent. I think in this case, the question of innocence when it comes in regards to the children in this film, it's kind of a misnomer in some ways. It's almost letting them off the hook because they don't know. They don't know about sex. They don't know about the outside world, really. You know, they don't really ever get to the bottom of what these kids' modus operandi is. They're just seen as good and pure. And I think what we see throughout the film is these kids struggling to find an identity. They're playing roles. They're trying things out. Flora has a turtle. And that's maybe not something that's totally expected of a little girl to be like, I'm super into reptiles. Even though, of course, as women, we know that's totally natural. But to show that, to show Miles maybe perhaps just experimenting with sexuality, just, you know, on the cusp of getting interested in it, playing something out in his own mind. We see these kids playing at things with the only people they have around them. And as Andrea said before on this podcast, we really look to the people around us when we're kids to show us how to behave. So I I very much believe in the nurture over nature argument. I, I think kids learn through what they see and what they see accepted around them. And I I think these kids are going through huge swaths of changes. Mm -hmm. And I think Miss Giddens' paranoia and what she sees, and if she truly sees it, is this terrifying, unrealized passion all around them. And it's an unrealized passion through the repression of the Victorian era, the era that they were kind of in in the 60s, when the film was released around, you know, the pill was just kind of coming in and we're kind of on the cusp of sexual freedom, as well as, you know, the illicit affair between these two people who have died, that this passion, that sex can always somehow lead to death. That's such a common trope in horror films. And I think the innocence does it in a really weird way, in an unexpected way. And I really like it. And I think one of the most chilling things for me about this film is throughout the film, you get a kind of a lot of like 
close-ups of Peter Quint. He's kind of like coming towards the camera and you're like, okay, that's a dude. That's a dude coming towards you. The thing that chills me to my bone is the couple instances where Miss Jessel shows up and she's kind of far away. She's among the weeds by this ravine in the grounds and it's in broad daylight and she is standing there and like you can't make out any of her features, but you can see her figure. And that to me is so well done and it truly, truly chills me to the bone. And that shot, shots like that have been ripped off throughout horror ever since. I think most explicitly in the 2012 version of The Woman in Black. Well, you you do have a thing with ghostly women. They scare me so fucking much. That's kind of your jam. Can you walk me home? So I'm really glad that we talked about these films. We wanted to talk about them forever. In fact, they're films that I saw that I was like, oh, there's good stuff in there. I just need to set aside time to really think about it and talk about it. And so the podcast has been so wonderful that I've gotten to do that for so many films that I've always wanted to come back to. And I feel like these films go together so beautifully. They're both stories of orphan children who have to make their way through the world as best they can and the ramifications and the reactions to how they adjust. And as Alex said, there is an element of hopefulness for the future. Both these films take place during times of social change where there was great anxiety about the next generation and how are things going to be and we fucked up the world. How do we not fuck up the next generation of kids who are going to inherit this world that we fucked up? And And also, as Alex mentioned before, this is something that I'm thinking about a lot this week, where a lot of the anxiety around the results of the presidential election is how am I going to explain this to my kids? In Canada, we celebrate Thanksgiving earlier than in the USA, and I went home to my hometown of Ottawa, and I got to hang out with my nieces and nephews a bit. And they're like, you know, 9 and 11 and 6, and they knew who Donald Trump was, and they knew that he was a bad man, but also a funny man. You know, he was funny looking, he was easy to imitate, he was a caricature of a politician to them, and they knew that... Adults didn't like him. At least me and my sisters didn't like him at all. Maybe they heard us fight with my dad, who is a bit of a fan for reasons that I will never fucking comprehend. But anyway, a lot of the news reporters who were covering the election were like, we are going to have to have some hard talks with our kids to explain why we said that he would never win and he's doing all these bad things gets elected. And so I think there's going to be... Man, I think there's going to be movies about kids and there's going to be movies about growing up under the Trump era and how that all shakes out. I don't know how it's going to shake out, but the movies will be interesting. The art will be incredible because there is palpable fear and rage and anxiety. I think we've seen a real swing to the right, uh, which began in Europe, uh, as far as I can kind of trace it back over the last few years, particularly in France. I became hyper aware of it when I was working on my book. And then I think we had the first kind of real death knell of progressive liberalism when the UK voted in favor of exiting the EU, in essence, putting up their borders once again. And I had a big hope that with the US election, it would put a big block in the road to continuing that with electing Hillary Clinton. You know, despite some of her flaws, she was a great candidate and she worked her entire life for it. And I think a lot of women out there saw so much of themselves in her and 
wanted this so badly across the world. And I think the election of Trump has seen not an end to this kind of white nationalism, but a progression of it. And I think, if anything, this will teach us to be more vigilant and to be more aware and that we cannot opt out of any kind of social engagement anymore. This is not an option. And we have to engage critically always with the media we enjoy. We have to engage critically with each other, but more importantly, we have to engage kindly with each other. And I hope that we can take a lesson from these films and look at our own morality and look at our own moral compasses and decide where they lie and really set a kind of chartered course for ourselves and our friends and be allies above all else, be an ally to anyone who needs it and listen and make space for people because that is what we need now, I think more than ever. But listen, we are a feminist podcast. We have been a feminist podcast for as long as we've admitted to it. Uh, we are an intersectional podcast. We are going to keep doing this. The light doesn't go out, guys. It's just going to get brighter and we're going to get angrier and louder. So maybe that's the silver lining. Nastier. Oh, so much nastier. So for announcements, my YouTube channel, The Bat Cave, has just hit a thousand subscribers. And as is custom for YouTube channels, I am having an episode to celebrate that fact. And I thought, what better way to celebrate than to invite my co-host and friend, Alexandra West, to join me on an episode of The Bat Cave for a Faculty of Horror Q&A. It's something that we've never really done before. People ask us questions all the time on social media, and we do our best to answer them, and we have our annual assessment episodes, but we're going to do one on film. We're going to do one that's recorded in video, so you can actually see us do it. So if you're listening before the 24th, head on over to YouTube, look up the Batcave Horror Channel, and you will see my announcement video where you can ask us a question, and we might answer it in our next video. But if we don't, and we kind of want to lob this next one to you guys, to our dear, dear listeners. So as Andrea mentioned, the past few Januaries, we've taken the opportunity to do an assessment episode where we take the feedback you guys have given us and we respond to it. Now, we aren't sure that's the best use of our time and your time. We want to create a show that not only Andrea and I love doing, but that you guys love listening to. So what we're going to do is a day or two after this episode goes live, I will create polls on our Twitter account and our Facebook account. So make sure you like and follow us there if you don't already. And we're going to ask... Do you want maybe a quote-unquote regular episode where we pick a film or two and talk about them in January? Or would you like something of a get-to-know-us-better episode where we can create some content, do something a little bit different, maybe respond to some of the bigger issues, but maybe not a traditional assessment episode as you guys might know it. So we don't know what we would do for January if we're going to put it to films and themes like that, but we've got a couple ideas. So we're going to throw that one back to you guys. And if you aren't on Twitter or Facebook, feel free to email us at info at facultyofhorror.com if you've got a really strong opinion. And we came to this decision because we do spend a lot of time actually engaging with you guys and responding um, through all the different 
messages and the way you guys get in touch with us. And you guys are so awesome. And we love engaging with you guys so much, but we're just kind of wondering what content do you want to wind up with for the new year? So hit us up, check out those things. We'll be posting those very soon. But first, there is still December to consider, and for December, we like to take something that's holiday set but is really fun and lighthearted, and that film is Gremlins. So that's going to be a great show. That's your homework for the month, and until next time. Office hours are closed. day he came to the world in the usual way but there were planes to catch and bills to pay he learned to walk while i was away and he was talking for i knew it and as he grew he'd say i'm gonna be like you dad you know i'm gonna be like you and the cats in the cradle and the
son, I don't know when, but we'll get together then, and we're gonna have a good 